So hi, and welcome to the Story of Software podcast. Today, we're going to talk about wallets, exchanges, and the future of crypto. We're joined by Corey Stedman, who is the CEO of Greenfire. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. We've recorded a number of podcasts on the cryptocurrency theme and looking forward to learn a little bit more about wallets and exchanges. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, Corey has over 10 years of experience in the IT world, mostly leading teams and projects in the fintech industry, working specifically on some blockchain technologies. Today, as the CEO of Greenfire, he's developing a wallet that will hopefully change the way we manage crypto assets. So we're really looking forward to getting your thoughts on this whole space. And maybe to begin with, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on at the moment. Uh, yeah, certainly. Thank you again for having me. Really appreciate it. So I've been in IT for more than 10 years and in the past five years, really delved into cryptocurrency development. I got introduced, well, I discovered Bitcoin in around 2012. I bought my first Bitcoin in 2013. And after some time, you know, I you know, explained to people and I had to really learn how to articulate this rather abstract concept of digital money. My friends and I, they were trading. I was trading as well. You know, they had these elaborate spreadsheets. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. But I'm not going to do that. There must be an automated way to do this, to track your gains and losses and your, your transactions. And I looked and I could not find it. And I was like, you know, this needs to get built. And that's what started me on the journey in regards to building this cryptocurrency wallet. Awesome. Um, for the benefit of our listeners who may be somewhat new to the crypto world, could you explain about what digital wallets and exchanges are? So a cryptocurrency wallet is not dissimilar to your own wallet. They keep it cash in. Think of it like your bank account, like a checking account. You get a number, and that's the number that in a fiat world, people would wire money to you. In a cryptocurrency world, your address that someone would send you Bitcoin or Litecoin or Ethereum to. And so a digital wallet basically is a wallet that interfaces with a blockchain and holds your currency. And an exchange is where you purchase cryptocurrency. There's two types of exchanges. There's a primary exchange and secondary exchanges. Primary exchanges like Coinbase or Bitstamp or Gemini, they allow you to purchase cryptocurrency directly with fiat. Secondary exchanges are exchanges that don't deal with fiat for whatever reason. Sometimes they just don't want to or they're working towards that and they just don't have it right now. And to purchase cryptocurrency, you have to use cryptocurrency on those platforms. And an exchange, on a software side is an amalgamation of wallets and you know software that does the, the bids and asks and lines of transactions and allows for us to execute trade. And that's how we see the daily price or not even the daily price, the minute by minute price of cryptocurrency in general, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, is because of these people bidding on one end and ask on another end and those bids and asks consistently lining up. That's how we get the cryptocurrency market and the prices set on these exchanges. And if we were to consider wallets, and I think there's different types of wallets out there in the crypto world, could you tell us a little bit about them? Yes. So they're native wallets. A native wallet is a wallet that is native to the cryptocurrency 
for instance, you have the Bitcoin wallet, the Litecoin wallet. They're very Spartan and they're only for that one cryptocurrency and they download the entire blockchain. But the Bitcoin is more than 250 gigs and same with Ethereum, I believe. And it downloads the entire blockchain. You're indexing the blockchain and, and it serves as a node on the network. Um, you'll have other wallets that are not native. They're light wallets. A light wallet is a wallet that does not download the entire blockchain. However, it interfaces with a wallet that has downloaded the entire blockchain. And then there are other wallets called multi-currency wallets, which are light wallets that support multiple currencies. They don't download the entire blockchain or currencies that they support, but they connect to other services or other wallets that provide access to the blockchain that they've indexed to this multi-currency wallet. Interesting. So I guess we could probably consider two broad categories of wallet. You've got your kind of heavy wallets, which operate as a node on the blockchain, and you've got these mm-hmm. that don't have that same functionality, so to speak. Yeah, it's an easy way to, to think about it. I'll say that. Now, just because it's a light wallet or a multi-currency wallet, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have you know, the functionality or a lot of functionality. It may have limited functionality, but it doesn't discount its ability to interface with the, the network. And I'll give a quick example. The wallet called MetaMask, which is essentially the de facto wallet of Ethereum, you know, even though it's a light wallet, which is an extension in the browser, it is used for storing NFTs and quick swaps and all sorts of stuff. It can host not only Ethereum, but then all the Ethereum tokens as well. So yeah, MetaMask, even though it's a light wallet, it is quite powerful. Where you mentioned uh, at the top of the podcast that you have been interested in this area for close to a decade and you began investing seven or eight years ago. For those of our listeners who aren't currently investing in the crypto space, what advice would you give to people when they're looking to choose a platform for their assets? Hmm, That's a good question. I guess here in New York, our options are quite limited, actually. However, outside of New York, you have more options than a native New Yorker. I would say when you're choosing a platform, an exchange to, to sign up with, make sure that it is credible and they have the necessary security, which is pretty standard now, um, but that also you have an assurance that you know they're not going to implode and you lose your currency. Now, one of the things I always tell someone is that even if you're to use like Coinbase or Gemini or Kraken or any of these big exchanges that are noteworthy, that are credible, you never know. They are under constant threat of attack. And so what do you do? You always have to have a wallet. And so you don't leave your cryptocurrency on the exchange. You take it in your possession. One of the main things in a cryptocurrency world is that if you don't have your keys, you don't own your currency. Meaning to say, when you leave your cryptocurrency on an exchange, you don't have access to the private keys that allows you to send it to wherever you want or to load it in a wallet. Exchanges don't offer that, which is why when they implode, you lose access to your currency. What you need to do is 
even though you may sign up to an exchange, you don't leave your currency up there. I guess to answer your question more directly, any exchange that you're on, there's always a risk of losing your currency. And so it's best to set up a multi-currency wallet on the laptop and on the cell phone. Make sure they're synced together. So if you're not actively trading, you move your currency to your private wallet. Corey, I've got a question for you about wallets themselves. Um, mm-hmm. You see a broad range in terms of the quality of wallets that are out there. And also, are there some significant risks about wallets that consumers should be conscious of? <clears throat> yes. So one of the things that I've been noticing actually on Facebook is there's been ads taken out impersonating Exodus, and they do great work there. However, there has been a campaign on Facebook to impersonate them. And what they've been doing, these people who are impersonating Exodus, is they have taken out these ads that say, hey, we're offering um, a web wallet of Exodus. And that's a big red flag. And what they've done is when you click on the link, it takes you to a website. And the website looks like the Exodus website perfectly. But for you to download the software, it asks you to put in your 12-word phrase. And your 12-word phrase is essentially your private key, where it's actually the seed to multiple private keys for your cryptocurrency wallet. And this is very dangerous, you know. So that's one thing that as you're entering the space, you have to be mindful of. There's a lot of disingenuous actors in the space. And these are some of the things that they try to do to essentially steal people's money. Does that answer your question? I hope... Um, no, it really does. And you're in the process of building a wallet. What are the technological challenges of building a, a new crypto wallet? So one of the main challenges with building a wallet is actually getting it to send. So the sending mechanism is quite complicated, actually, because you have to sign the transactions. And it's a lot of signs involved, to put it shortly. But aside from that, building a wallet, you know, I and my team, we didn't want to just build a wallet that's just like everything else. We wanted to build something that is not only scalable, but that's also quite distinct on the marketplace. And that also lays the foundation for other projects as well. You know, prior to this, I was working on another project and there was a missing component and I just couldn't figure out what it was. And then as we embarked on this journey with our wallet, and our wallet is called Greenery, by the way, um, as we embarked on our journey with our wallet, it just clicked. Like, this will be the cornerstone of Greenfire and that it will lay the foundation for other projects. And the projects that we, we did work on in the past, this actually is the missing piece to the puzzle. So to answer your question a little bit more directly, in regards to the, the challenges, getting it to send, testing, um, you know, building up those ancillary functions as well that really makes it distinct, integrating with the quick exchange services, um, those have been challenging. Corey, it's quite topical in, in the news recently about a, a hack at the Poly Network. It was estimated that I believe in excess of $600 million worth of assets were stolen. 
What's your analysis of what happened here and what lessons could be drawn in this situation? Well, I mean, it's unfortunate. Polly's not the first. They will not be the last. You know, I guess in a sense, fortunately, the person that was behind the half, I guess they're somewhat honorable. They've returned many of the assets. I'm not sure if they completed returning all the assets yet. But this is, this is something that's going to happen. You know, we live in a digital age now where everything, our whole lives are interfacing with internet. And then on top of that, the projects and the products that we build, they not only interface, they live on the internet. You know, security is paramount. Security is number one and two, number zero, one, one and two. And so in cases like this, we really need to make sure to figure out ways that disincentivize hacks. So in regards to the, the Bitcoin network, for instance, what disincentivizes 51% of taxes is that it would be too costly to undermine the Bitcoin blockchain, right? But there's not that mechanism per se with other networks, right? And yes, there have been 51% of tax on some other networks as well, but you know they didn't really have the same backing as Bitcoin. In regards to the Poly network, you know there needs to be more auditors before you set your projects live. Um, it should be audited, you know, not by one auditor, but by two or three auditors to make sure that it's secure. You know, people are putting their trust. They're putting their trust in these projects, and so each time these hacks are successful. What it does is it, it gives fodder and ammunition to politicians and detractors and you know critics that cryptocurrency is just magic money and is monopoly money and look is unsecure and you don't want to give them that kind of ammunition and um yeah so it's better to pay up front the cost of security than to pay later in rectifying the issue and PR spinning and all that stuff you know what should happen is Get it audited. Get it, get it pen tested because you don't want this. This is embarrassing to the community at large. Or you, you've touched on some very interesting topics there in terms of security, in terms of auditing, in terms of the political considerations. What do you see are some of the unsolved challenges in this space, aside from those topics that we've already covered? So what might we see next in the world of wallets, exchanges, crypto, etc.? I think the future or the natural evolution of cryptocurrency is more bridges to the real world. You know, you're seeing a lot of lending protocols. You know, you have Aave, you have Celsius, you have Salt, and um, there's a couple others as well. And right now, it's more so lending for the purpose of investing. But in the real world, the purpose of lending, the purpose of taking out a loan, we take out loans in regards to education, in regards to buying a house, buying a car, in regards to starting a business, and maybe other, you know, miscellaneous things as well. And what I see is that bridging where someone takes out a loan in USDC or USDT to purchase a car, or they put up their Bitcoin as collateral to take out a loan to purchase a home. And so that's where I really see the future of cryptocurrency in general going. 
and it actually goes back to you know what I had previously said in regards to security. You know, if we're not securing these protocols, then it undermines and it delays the adoption of of these potential use cases where Bitcoin or Ethereum or Litecoin or Tezos can be used in the real world. So Corey, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been super interesting to cover this topic with you. Thank you as well. I really appreciate it, Patrick. Production was by Albina Cresteba with editing by Adnan Tukar and music by Robert Cooney. Join us again next time on the Story of Software podcast.